if we move on now to sort of Hannah's session where we're looking at incorporating healthcare data into life insurance products, pricing and design, how can we help those people out there with the information that we have achieve cheap insurance? Um, I, I certainly sort of consider our clients who don't tend to understand why if we're sitting with healthcare data, why we can't apply it in the insurance environment and they have to go for very uncomfortable sort of medical underwriting. Um, and for me, that's certainly a pain point in the industry. And if it's something that we don't address, um, it opens up a significant amount of disruption within our industry. And all of a sudden, you know, Google will come in and use big data. So Hannah's hopefully going to give us a sense of what the opportunities are for us in this industry to change the way that we do underwriting, to change the way that we provide insurance to individuals in, in a more sort of accessible, meaningful way, and we change the way that we as insurance companies and investment companies in, in, in the sort of same breath um, can connect with our clients. Um, Hannah is a fellow of the Actuarial Society. Um, she's been in the industry for 10 years, worked for Genry and for Metropolitan. Uh, she's currently an independent consulting actuary and com completing her, her master's in actuarial science at the University of Cape Town. Uh, should you recognize her voice, it's because she's also a voiceover artist and a presenter on a local community radio show. Over to you, Hannah. Thank you very much for that introduction, Rowan. I doubt very much that anybody will recognize my voice, but hopefully after this, it might start to sound a little bit more familiar. Um, my presentation today is looking at incorporating healthcare data into life insurance pricing and product design. Now, the kind of healthcare data that I'm going to be talking about is um, data that's not currently found, or let's say traditionally found, in the hands of life insurers. And so my aim today is to try and address the two questions, which would be, how can life insurers gain access to that data? And having gained access to the data, how exactly can it be used in a way that might be judged fair to policyholders and in a way that improves the way we do risk assessment in life insurance. Now I plan to go about addressing this issue by starting to look at how we have done risk assessment historically in life insurance. And I'll look at the kind of data sources that have been used. I'll then move on to talking about sources of additional data. Um, and seeing how these sources of additional data might fill gaps that exist between what, that exist in terms of what we're currently doing and potentially just make the process um, into, some, into some, something that might look different from what it currently is, but makes life insurance um, risk assessment a continuous thing. I'll then, for each one of those additional data sources, address how they can be used. And I'll give examples of product design innovations, some currently happening in South Africa and others overseas. 
are then summarized and draw some conclusions about the kind of work that needs to be done for us to move forward with this. Now, as a topic, each time I have spoken to somebody about this, they do say that this is something that's very topical. And my hope today is that by doing this, we can generate some discussion around these issues. And um, I'm actually hoping to, to learn as much as um, I'm hoping you will get from my presentation. So let's start by looking at what has traditionally been done as far as risk assessment in life insurance is concerned. The way things currently work, you approach a life insurance company and at that point your risk is assessed in terms of the risk that is posed by an individual and a premium is then set that will be in effect for the life of that insurance policy. To start off, the kind of data that was used to determine what um, premium should be charged was basically just age and gender. Later on, smoker status was also added to that, and we've also seen medical tests, medical examinations being part of that process. Um, over the last, um, towards the end of the 20th century, most life insurance companies adopted what you would call the preferred underwriting classification system. And the data that was gathered was then used to put lives into different categories, the lives that would be considered standard risks and then the non-standard risks. And those non-standard risks would fall into categories where some would probably undergo further underwriting and be charged a premium based on the extra risk that they're thought to possess, and others might actually just be declined insurance. Now, if you look at this process, we see that it's, it's static in that the risk assessment is done at inception. Now, your health does not remain static, and therefore the, the risk that one poses doesn't remain static either. But there's nothing within the risk assessment process that takes account of the fact that a policyholder's health will change, whereas the premium remains static. So it sort of drifts out of line with the risk that it's meant to be covering. Another thing is that, as you will see from the kind of data that we're going to be talking about, there is a risk of anti-selection in that a lot of the data that we'll be talking about is in the hands of the policyholders, but not in the hands of the life insurers. And this creates a greater potential for anti-selection. I talked about the fact that the um, preferred underwriting classification system places lives into what you would call the standard lives and the non-standard lives, and yet within that standard life classification, we don't have a significant or any risk stratification that gives us the ability to determine how much one standard life should be charged in comparison to the other. Because just because they're in that standard group, that doesn't mean that they all possess exactly the same type of risk. And also the idea that um, that underwriting process and requesting medical tests at that time can be an inconvenience to policyholders. And then the question becomes, is there a different way to do it, given that we do have data from other sources? In going forward, I'd like to see how this process could change if we were to start to look at other data sources and see how they can be incorporated into the process. And the kind of data that I'm aiming to look at today 
would be the data that comes out of genetic tests, data that comes out of the managed healthcare system, data from wearable technology, and that last one there, data analytics, is not an actual source of data, but my aim there will be to try and see how the advances in technology can influence the way things are currently being done. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all the data that's out there, but it's just something that I thought would help generate the kind of discussion that I think is needed around these issues. So we'll start off by looking at genetic tests. And um, I'm starting off here because this is perhaps one of the first non-traditional um, sources of data that came onto the scene. Genetic tests will be used to determine one's predisposition to acquire a particular disease. Um, and a reason one might go for a genetic test is to find out if one is predisposed towards getting a certain disease, then it gives one the opportunity to actually do something about it. Potential early diagnosis that would then enable one to seek treatment. Now, looking at how this might be used within life insurance, we see that it would enable life insurers to have more precise risk identification because for each individual, if you were able to have um, access to their genetic tests, then you could see exactly what this person might get in future and hence know what their risk is compared to the next person. It would also then be possible to provide customized solutions for individual policyholders. For instance, you could come up with a critical illness policy that covers specific diseases that an individual is most likely to get. It also brings up the opportunity to create a market in unusual risks. If genetic tests do um, reveal certain risks that are currently not being insured, this then gives the opportunity to see if it's possible to develop products that would cover those risks. And in looking at the results from a genetic test, it could show that somebody has a likelihood to develop a disease that is preventable. And this opens up the opportunity to do something at that stage, perhaps giving life insurers the opportunity to engage with clients in a way that they do not currently do, getting them involved in programs that might help prevent that actual disease. Now, th this kind of thing is something that's a possibility. As far as I know, genetic tests um, data is not being used in this way because there is the issue of data protection and um, clients would need to give their consent to have this sort of data used. There's also the, the idea that once you have had this kind of um, test and been exposed to the fact that you might develop a particular illness, it creates that, it could create unnecessary concern in the mind of the policyholder. And if they don't eventually develop that disease, they might, may feel that they were missold a policy, perhaps given the impression that the likelihood of them getting that disease is very high and they really do need to get that policy. And they end up feeling that it wasn't necessarily something that they needed. 
But I, I, I think it's just worth talking about because the, the idea that this data exists, there could be ways in future that open up, that make it easier to, to make use of this sort of thing. The next um, source of data that I would like us to look at is the managed care data. Now, a managed care um, system is one in which you have um, a network of healthcare providers that are providing medical services to individuals. What this means is that individuals would only consult the providers that work within that network. And the idea is to provide appropriate healthcare services in a cost-effective manner. And just looking at that arrangement, you can see that this is a, a very rich data environment because the history of all the medical practitioners that a person has consulted will sit within this network. Um, access, again, would be given to prescription history. One would be able to see exactly what drugs this person has taken and give a sense of what this means about that person's health. So it looks as though within this kind of environment, if one has access to that data, it should give the life insurer the ability to have um, an ongoing picture of the health of an individual. And this, ought to f this could be used to feed into the underwriting process and perhaps make um, people who have not had access to insurance insurable. I have a specific example that I think would help illustrate this, and this is a company, a South African company called All Life Insurance that is doing something about this. And let's just have a look at this video clip and I'll let them explain exactly what they're doing. Um. And with that, uh, it is with great pleasure that I introduce the leader of our first portfolio company, Ross Bierman, who is uh, truly a heroic social entrepreneur from uh, South Africa, uh, my own home country. Hello, all. Thank you very much, uh, Andy. I've been, uh, everybody, please note I've been severely limited to five or six minutes, so I'm just going to. Uh, give you a bare taste, a little uh, morsel about what our, uh, our business does down in South Africa and uh, the kind of impact, I guess, that, uh, that a leapfrog investment can have in a, in a, in a, small, a small business in, in South Africa. So in the simplest terms, what we do is we provide life insurance to people living with HIV. Um, that, uh, that may not sound uh, particularly dramatic, but uh, we're uh, pretty much the only people in the world uh, who do that. So we. Uh, We've had calls from all around the world. We've had calls from the US, from Europe, from Asia, uh, for people looking for life insurance, for all the, the kind of normal reasons you'd look for life insurance. And uh, we've pretty much had to decline most of them, but we provide cover to everybody living in, in South Africa. Uh, South African residents we're able to provide life insurance to. So the reason kind of we're, we're the only company that does it is because we're, uh, we're slightly different. Uh, we help our clients actually manage their health uh, we help them stay healthy, uh, we remind them what, what it is that they should be doing, and so we've, we're able to provide affordable life cover. Um, this means we text them, we email them, we call them, we write them letters. We talk to our clients an average of once a month, 
Uh, if you have life insurance, you, you'd be shocked to get a call once a month from your life insurance company to check how you're doing. But we speak to our, our clients an average of once a month, make sure that they're doing the right thing, that they're going for their blood test. You might uh, get a call saying, please go for your blood test. You really need to go for your blood test. Please tell me you went for your blood test, right? So our clients get healthier pretty much just by being our clients. Um, and um, w w one of the things we've also managed to do is we've linked into the healthcare industry in South Africa. So we're, uh, we're linked into 95% of the healthcare data available in South Africa. So uh, we can tell when our, what our clients are doing, whether they've gone for their blood test, what the results are, what they should be doing next. And we drive them into the medical environment uh, to, to get the appropriate treatment. So we, we clearly, we had, to build, we had to build a new administration infrastructure from scratch. Uh, none of us actually came from the insurance world. So otherwise, we would have known it was impossible to communicate with your clients an average of once a month and actually make it affordable. But uh, not knowing, we built the admin infrastructure anyway um, and, and found out that, in fact, it was possible to deliver product to, to the mass market at an affordable rate, even with, the, with a high-touch uh, kind of process. And we're talking about real life insurance here. We have uh, a lot of clients who take $5,000 of life cover, but we have clients who take $2 million of life cover. So this is to someone living with HIV. Um, and uh, you know, one, of the, one, of the, one of the questions we get is kind of, so what? You know, what, what, what does it do? What, is, what impact does it have? Um, for, for most people in this room where it's pretty easy to get life cover, uh, we don't understand the impact that being declined for life insurance by a life company actually has. Because when a life company tells you that you're declined for life insurance, what they're effectively telling you is that they expect you to die and they expect you to die pretty soon. And that's, that's, that's pretty much the message. If you believe that message, what you do is you, uh, you can't invest in any long-term projects. You certainly wouldn't bother to get educated. You don't buy a house. You don't start a business. You remove yourself from society, you reduce your impact on your family so that uh, when you die, which you're pretty much waiting to do, uh, you have as minimal an impact on your support group as possible. When people come into our environment, uh, many times the first time anybody's said that, you know, uh, HIV is a chronic manageable disease, you can expect to live a long time, we will give you life insurance and we will help you live a long time. What that means is our clients uh, in turn get themselves educated, they buy houses, they start businesses, they can invest in long-term projects. They pretty much enter the normal uh, economy, the, uh, the financial uh, service market that, that, that most people here take for granted. They're able to access loan financing, able to really start looking longer term um, and start uh, continuing to be part of their, their general community. So then there's, uh, there's, there's, there's leapfrog. I mean, what happens normally when I tell people that, uh, if, if it's people I haven't met and I tell them I'm in life insurance, normally people take a step back. They're, I think they're worried I'm about to sell them a policy. But uh, they take a step back and then I, then I tell them that uh, actually it's life insurance for people living with HIV and then they take two or three steps further back and, and they lean forward and they lower their voice because you know it's more serious if you lower your voice and they go, aren't you worried that your clients are going to die? And I say to them, we're all going to die. Okay? This, is, this comes not as a, quite a shock to them, but uh, I mean, that's, that's the reality of, our li of life insurance. Life insurance is just, uh, it's just uh, ab about making sure that people live long enough that it can be affordable. And, uh, and our clients get that message. We are a for-profit company, right? Are, and that's, that's a big part of what we, 
what we say and, wh and why we are credible with our, our clients. Um, if uh, if uh, you're for profit, your clients understand that uh, for us to make a profit, we need our clients to live a very long time. Uh, if what we say is wrong, we're going to be writing some very big checks. We have uh, um, the difference when we, when we went to look for capital, the difference, and we've known the LeapFrog guys for several years, um, um, is that when, we, when I said, you know, I'm, in, I'm involved in life insurance, they took a step forward. All right? They didn't take a step back. Uh, and they said, how can we help you? How can we allow you to reach more people more effectively, have a greater impact? And what they've done is allow us to change our growth curve. So their, their investment flowed in January this year. I think we've grown about 25% in the last three months. We've provided about $150 million, that's about a billion rand of life insurance to people living with HIV in South Africa, and, uh, and we're having a real impact. Um, and I, I expect in the future to, you know, to continue to be invited to, to these events, but not as uh, LeapFrog's first investment, but certainly as LeapFrog's best investment. I think that's a wonderful example of the kind of thing that we're talking about. The CEO mentioned there that um, they provide cover to people with HIV, but I think they also cover, as far as I know, they also cover diabetes. And the, the question arises, is it possible to do this with other chronic diseases? Um, this is an example of how continuous risk assessment that's enabled by data coming out of a managed care system has made it possible for people who didn't previously have access to insurance to now have insurance. Um, they also do things in a different way in that where we talked about earlier the fact that we current traditional life insurance has that first contact with the policyholder when the policy is being written and the next time will be when a claim incident has occurred. Here they're actually engaging with their policyholders on a, a monthly basis, he said. And you think about how that, what that can do to just improve the image of the life insurance industry, certainly different from what it is now. But the flip side of that is I see how this works very well for some chronic diseases. Um, would that be possible for other diseases? And is it just possible if we're looking at um, mortality policies that only pay out for mortality. How much do we really want our life insurers to be involved in our lives? So that's a challenge that would exist in seeing how it would be possible to use this sort of model um, to maybe do things differently. The next thing that I'm going to be talking about is wearable technology. Um, wearable technology, I think when you hear that, the, the most common things that would be known in South Africa would be your fitness trackers, like your Fitbit and your Apple Watch. Sorry, I think I skipped one of my slides there. Let's just go back. There we go. The, the most commonly known in South Africa would, would be your Fitbit and your Apple Watch. And these um, fitness trackers, the kind of data that they produce would be things like your step count, your heart rate, um, number of steps climbed. And those are the most, po um, the most popular um, fitness trackers on the market today. But we are seeing an advent of 
fitness, I mean of wearable technology that's also bringing out more health-related metrics. Like you can see there, we've got an example of something that measures insulin and glucose levels, something that measures blood pressure, and this kind of data is definitely the sort of thing that we use within the life insurance industry as it stands in the hands of the policyholders, what can we do to get it into the hands of the life insurers? Now, how could this data be used? As with the example that we've just looked at with all life, it could be used to increase insurability. And it would be the same concept. The fact that you now have a more continuous picture of a policyholder's health could make life insurers um, more willing to cover people that were previously not considered um, risks worth taking. Also, with the current way of doing our risk assessment, I talked about how you've got your standard lives and your non-standard lives, and without, within that group of standard lives, we don't necessarily have the risk stratification that would enable us to charge an appropriate premium for the individual. Again, having data coming out of um, wearable technology that gives you a better picture of a client's health would make that possible, enabling life insurers to charge a fairer premium because they're specifically looking at a specific person with that person's health and charging them what they would consider fair. Another thing that this kind of data enables is for us to have innovative design features. And examples of these would be things like premium discounts which would be accessible to people if they're willing to let the life insurer access this data. And we do have some examples within the South African market, like Momentum Life, where this is being done. Another innovation would be to have a floating premium. And what that would mean is that depending on how the person's health evolves over time, their premium could potentially go up or go down. Um, John Hancock Life Insurance Company in the United States does have such a program. And on the face of it, it, it might sound like a good idea because then you have a premium that is um, remaining in line with the risk that the life that the policyholder poses. But on the other hand, how willing will policyholders be to buy policies where there is the potential for their policy to go up? If you think about it, we sell life insurance as a way of exchanging some uncertainty with certainty, and that uncertainty is not knowing when you're going to need a certain amount of money and whether you will have that money at that time. You exchange that with the idea that you're going to pay uh, a level premium for a certain amount of time, and when you do need that lump sum, it will be available. So having floating premiums takes away that certainty in that you, you no longer have the certainty of a level premium and there is the potential for it to go up. That, that's something that I, I wondered about and it's, it'll be interesting to see how things develop um, with life insurance companies that have that kind of design feature. Um, reward programs, there we, I'm referring to something that would be quite similar to what we see with Vitality Life here in, in South Africa. I mean vi the Vitality program that Discovery runs here in South Africa. And it's by, it is a way of rewarding um, policyholders for letting the life insurer have access to this data and for maintaining a certain level of health, they may maintain a certain premium. If their health declines, then they um, end up lose, losing the benefits that they have accrued. 
So this is interesting, how it would actually work, how it's actually working in practice remains to be seen. Um, another challenge here would be, we've talked about the kind of data that comes out of wearable technology. And um, it's one thing to have that data and quite another to see exactly how it should be used. For instance, which health metrics should be um, monitored? Which ones have the most predictive outcome for the mortality options that we're interested in? Also, given that you have that data, how does it actually work as a rating factor for your life insurance? Those are the questions that I think need to start being addressed in order for this to move from being something that could potentially be used into something that can actually be used. And it's certainly not a, a trivial matter to be able to do that sort of analysis because there is a, a world of data out there. So first of all, to decide which metrics we're going to focus on and to figure out exactly what impact they are having on the mortality and morbidity options that we're interested in poses quite a bit of work. But I think interesting work and the sort of thing that we probably decided to become actuaries for. Um, the last one that I'm going to be looking at is, um, as I said, data analytics, which is not an actual source of data, but if you look at today's environment where computer technology has made it possible to have a lot more data and a lot quicker, it, it seems as though that is something that can feed into processes that we already have and see how we can make them better and maybe even more up to date. And an example of this is with evidence-based underwriting. Um, now, that's not something new. This is basically just doing underwriting in a very systematic way where your underwriting decisions are based on objective scientific data. Now, data analytics gives us access to, to this kind of data at a much faster and perhaps real-time um, real way so that underwriters should be able to make decisions with the most up-to-date and um, the kind of scientific breakthroughs that are happening and seeing how that can feed into the underwriting decisions that they make on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, it's, it sounds great, but lots of work would need to be done to um, have a situation where your underwriters have the skills necessary to interpret the data that's coming their way. So I'm going to just summarize what we have, we have spoken about so far. We started off by looking at um, what we currently do in risk assessment, and we highlighted the, the gaps that exist there. And I then presented a number of additional sources of data that could be used to plug those gaps and make um, some of the limitations something that we can deal with. The issue is, of course, how do we gain access to this data? And I've shown examples of what some companies are doing so that um, you find a way to incentivize policyholders to actually want to give the data to the life insurers. The big challenge is, yes, you do have that data. How are you going to use it? And there is a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. So I, I just do want to end by restating those, those two questions that I was exploring. And those are, how do we develop products that will incentivize life um, policyholders to hand this data over to life insurers? And once that has been done, how exactly can that data be used to make the risk assessment process much better than it currently is? And that is all that I had to share with you today.
and I'll take questions and comments. Hi, um, I've got uh, quite a specific question uh, relating to all life insurance. Um, he mentioned that they have 95% of the healthcare data in South Africa. Do you know specifically which data he's talking about and where that data is coming from? I also noted that and would be very interested to, to hear the answer to that. If, if there's anybody here for, from All Life Insurance who wishes to share with us, I would, I would also like to know that. I um, don't have any further insight into what that is. Okay, because I was just thinking, I mean, of the health care data, that would be medical schemes data, and I don't see how they could have 95% of the medical scheme data. I think my assumption was that it would be coming out of a managed care system. But then I'm just assuming that because they would have had to get consent from those people. But I do not know for sure. Exactly. Okay. Thanks. Um, Hannah, thanks so much for, for that presentation. Um, I, I, was quite, I quite like all the initiatives that encouraged, uh, that encouraged police orders to behave in a way that reduces risk. So, you know, encourage them to exercise and the like. However, my question is on the on a very accurate assessment of risk. I wonder if that will not destroy the industry. In other words, I'm saying, if we if we knew for sure that this client is going to get a critical illness next year, um, the the life insurance company is going to be very hesitant, or we'll price them accurately so that they probably put um, an amount of money which is very close to what they'll claim next year. And if we know that this other client is very unlikely to, to, to get the same disease, it would mean that that client is effectively not going to find any value in, uh, in taking insurance. So I wonder if the, the genetics option is not a danger in its own, uh, in the sense that it removes uncertainty on both sides. It might or it may remove or reduce significantly the uncertainty on both ends, such that the, 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 the mutual intent and benefit that insurance brings is effectively threatened. I think that that's an interesting thing to think about. And my response to that would be, whereas you can remove uncertainty, or not remove uncertainty, you can reduce uncertainty, I don't think we're at a point where it can be completely removed. And there, just because your test says that you are predisposed to get a certain disease, doesn't mean that you will actually get it. All we're saying is that this is the chance of you getting it. So you might not actually get it. And even if you do get it, we don't know exactly when you will get it. So there is still significant uncertainty that exists that warrants insurance, in my opinion. Um, that brings the session to a close. Thanks, Michael. I also sort of worry that we, we we're removing the, the sort of principle of insurance. But I think what excites me is our ability to reduce the sort of claims experience and to, to properly engage with our policyholders to, to improve their lives. So thanks very much for your questions in the session and your participation. Uh, we've got a reasonably long lunch and, and please refer to your calendars with the program to see which session suits you best for the next one. Thanks. Mm -hmm.